0: Let me finish up my study with you on why I believe the Bible was written by God. You know, this morning I opened to Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 where it says, preach the word. And I've been preaching to you about the word for several sermons. And I just want to tell you that in my opinion as your pastor, it's been a spiritual vacation for you unless you've been studying other matters on the side. Because as soon as we come together again next Sunday, the Lord willing, I will turn this 66 magnum back onto our souls and point it at us and point out the things that we need to change because it is the word of God and it speaks to us of changes that we ought to make in our lives. Um, I haven't ever preached this subject before. It's been exciting to me to study it and I hope that it's been valuable to you in reminding you that we do have in our hands the Bible and the word of the living God. and that it is established beyond all reasonable doubt, and that if you have faith, to to the man with faith, and I'm only preaching to those with faith. I couldn't care less for a man that doesn't have faith. If he doesn't have faith, I don't care about him, and neither does God, until God gives him faith. And now that sounds so harsh and cruel and unkind, but the Bible says Paul prayed that he would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men that didn't have faith. Men that don't have faith are unreasonable men, and they are wicked men, because reasonable men and righteous men live their lives based on faith, trust in God and his promises. Let's look again at the word of God tonight. We're to proof number 20 of the fact that God has written the Bible. And I want to show you tonight from, from proof number 20 because of its integrity. You know, the Bible has been the most maligned book for the last 2,000 years of any other book, and yet it has not been found to have internal contradictions or errors that cannot be explained by Bible believers that read it with a believing heart. There are many apparent contradictions because God was wise enough to put them in there to, find, to give Bible skeptics enough rope to tie it around a branch high in the tree and hang themselves. Right. God put many apparent contradictions in the Bible, which, with a believing eye, if you study them, you find most interesting answers and explanations that fit the rest of the Word of God. I love those apparent contradictions. They don't undermine my faith. They build my faith. Amen. Right. Because they show the wisdom of God, making foolish the wisdom of this world. Now, when I say there's no internal contradictions, we're not dealing with different translations of the Bible. We're dealing with the King James Bible. If we start dealing with other translations, you've got a whole lot of problems, but not the King James Bible. And remember, it's been around now for almost 400 years, and they can't find the internal contradictions in it like we can in theirs. Theirs are so easy to find. The Bible is a book of integrity, different from other books, because other books written by men, other holy books written by men, you can find within them even translations of our Bible. You can find internal contradictions where in one place they're going, another place they're coming, and it's a falsehood. It's froward words. It's impure words. It's a lie in one or both places. And so it proves itself not to be the word of God, because God said, in my words, there is nothing froward or perverse, and that no lie is of the truth. As science and archaeology have made more and more discoveries over the last couple of hundred years... Their discoveries have not proven anything wrong in the Bible. Their discoveries confirm the Bible. And that's been a wonderful thing as we've had more discoveries, especially in the last couple hundred years. Those discoveries confirm the Word of God. They don't refute it. And that's wonderful. To archaeological digs, when they come upon some new city, lo and behold, that city was talked about in the Bible. If it was in the Middle East... And was described there, even if it may included a civilization that social scientists and archaeologists had no knowledge of, like the Hittite Empire, which the Bible spoke of many, many times. Now, this morning, I wanted to mention to you about the difference in the morality, as far as its integrity, in the Word of God versus, say, the Koran. And the example I want to give you, I, I briefly mentioned this morning, and I don't have time to go much further than that this evening. Remember. In the Quran, to, sh- to look at the integrity of a book versus the integrity of the Bible, in the Quran, every Muslim is limited to four wives. But supposedly, the writer of the Quran was given an exception to that clause, and he could have as many as he wanted. And that's clearly taught in the Quran. That's Surah 30, that's chapter 33, or book 33, and verses 50 and 51. But in the Bible, remember, it's different than that. In the Bible, God's ministers were limited to one wife. The bishop and the deacon, specifically told in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verses 2 and 12, must be the husband of one wife. Now, some of you, your heads jerked this morning when I said what I said. When you look at the Bible and you're fair with the entire Word of God from beginning to end, polygamy is not adultery. Polygamy is just stupidity, it's not adultery. It's stupid because it's not the way God planned for man to have marriage. God planned for man to have marriage with one woman. Genesis chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 2 said he had the residue of the spirit and he could have made more, but he didn't because it was one man for one woman. It's foolish and it is not God's ideal, but it's one of those things that God allows that is foolish and will cost us. We can't do it in America because it's against the law, and we submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, but it's not adultery. And, I, and you have to come to that position if you're going to let all the Word of God speak. Whether you like that position or not, that's what the Bible teaches, and if the Bible teaches it, that's all I want to preach. And so when I said that this morning, and I see the little, the little uh, jerks of your head wondering what I'm saying, that's what I'm saying. In the Bible, you cannot show polygamy, to be adultery if you're treating your second, third, and other wives fairly by God's definition of what the minimum qualifications of treating a wife, which is Exodus chapter 21 and verse 10. But notice in the Koran, look at its integrity. You know, Muslims get four, but the author gets as many as he wants. The integrity of the word of God is the bishops and the deacons get one, and Paul, the greatest of the New Testament prophets and apostles had none, which shows the integrity of those men. While there may have been liberties granted to their hearers, they did not take those liberties. What a book to be written by men that are that strict upon their own lives, but looser on the lives of the hearers. You know, the Pharisees were the opposite, remember? Jesus said about the Pharisees, they want to put grievous burdens to be borne on your back, but they won't even lift a finger for such burdens themselves. What a difference when we come to the Word of God. The integrity of the Bible. Think about the horrible sins of even its heroes. You know, when there's a book with heroes in it, the heroes are usually exonerated, defended, and made to look like they were perfect or wonderful, glorious heroes. But look at the Bible. Just think about Noah's drunkenness. Think about Samson's lust. Think about David's adultery and murder. Think about Hezekiah's pride. Think about Peter's denial and hypocrisy. Those sins are brought forth and and mentioned numerous times about David. And when we look at that, we see that in the Bible there there is a degree of integrity that we are not used to in the writings of men. Because even the heroes of the Word of God, those that are in Hebrews chapter 11, the great men of faith, are shown to be sinners, and their sins are pointed out and identified, and the specific details are given about those sins. That shows the integrity of the Word of God, which makes it different. Look at the horrible sins of the writer's nation are listed. You know, from the the Old Testament all the way into the New, the sins and the demonic character of the Jewish nation at times is listed and expounded and explained as being so wicked and flagrantly wicked. How could I mentioned this this morning under a different point, but how could Jews write so critically of their own people, of their own nation, of their own religion, unless there was someone else giving them the words to say, which shows the degree of integrity that is in the Bible? It doesn't exalt man. The Bible doesn't exalt man or lift him up. It rather describes man with painful accuracy and condemnation, doesn't it? Where does it put man? The poison of asps is under our lips. By nature... We were, as the children of the devil, obeying his lust and his will, taken captive by him at his will, living in in envy and foolish lusts, hateful and hating one another, and on and on the Bible goes, describing man in very unflattering terms, and not a single writer excuses himself from that universal guilt and the condition of the human race in the slightest degree. They all put themselves right in. The Apostle Paul writing, Romans chapter 7 says, the things that I would, I don't. The things that I should be loving, I hate. And he goes on at length to describe the conflict that he has within him by nature, how corrupt he was. He said when he first understood the commandment, thou shalt not lust. When God opened that commandment up to the Apostle Paul, he said, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. All manner of sexual lust, concupiscence. Go home and look it up. The Apostle Paul admitted what that verse did to him when it came to him with understanding. He saw the breadth of it and realized how sinful he was. That's the integrity of the Word of God. I want to show you that the Bible is the Word of God because of its miracles. You know, the Bible was written at a time very close to the events of the New Testament in which it could have been shown to be false and therefore would have floated away like so many other novels. There was just one great difference. The men that were writing those books and the men that were preaching those sermons could raise the dead. They could take up serpents and shake them off in the fire, deadly serpents, and nothing would happen to them. They could raise the sick and make the lame to walk. They could speak in any language they needed to at any time. These miracles were continually forthcoming from the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ while they gave the testimony that Jesus is risen from the dead. Therefore, the Bible spread so rapidly. Because just think about the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible. The so-called son of a carpenter has been raised from the dead. And he is seated at God's right hand. And we're here to tell you that he's the judge of the earth, heaven and earth And we're all going to be held accountable for our actions. And He's the only Savior. And the men that are doing that preaching are fishermen from Galilee that can't even speak their own language. And why did it spread like wildfire? And when it spread, it didn't spread in some campaign to build a nation or for some earthly gain like Islam spread. It wasn't anything like that. It was changed lives. How did that happen? Because of the miracles. Look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, did you know that verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16, they tell us, are not really scripture, they're not in most new translations, verses 9 through 20? Even the Schofield Reference Bible has a note there that says these verses are not found in the best manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and it lists them by name. Even a Bible that calls itself the King James Bible. But these verses are important. Jesus said to his apostles in Mark sixteen fifteen, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, these are wonderful verses, verses 19 and 20. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Amen. These fishermen went out preaching, and they went out preaching everywhere where they had no respect, they had no credentials, they had nothing except mighty signs and wonders. And that's a whole lot better than credentials. Do you want to listen to Dr. So-and-so? Or do you want to listen to fisherman so-and-so who's just raised your wife from the dead? Amen. It's wonderful. The Bible grew so rapidly with its strange message and into pagan Rome came this message of the, carpent- the so-called carpenter, you know what I mean when I say that, to-, to unbelievers on the outside, he was just the carpenter's son. Right. But the Lord blessed it with mighty signs and wonders. And Josephus told of those miracles, and Pilate wrote Tiberius about those miracles, just hold on, just hold on a couple minutes, about those miracles. Those miracles were not done under a bushel. Those miracles were not done in secret, they were done in open, and that's what gave impetus to the spread of the gospel to those fishermen, tax collectors, and others that were the followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is the Word of God because of the miracles that God sent down from heaven upon it to, off, to, to, uh, to make authentic the Word of God from the mouths of fishermen in the early days. Now, it didn't last for long because as soon as the New Testament came together that had been confirmed by eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ and eyewitnesses of the miracles, then the miracles ceased because we had the word of God established. It couldn't be overthrown because of miracles. It is precious to read Islamic writings about the lack of miracles in the life of Muhammad. He never had one. He knows he never had one, and they know he never had, never had one, and so they call the Koran a miracle. But all you got to do is flip it open three times in three different places, and you know it's no miracle. Your children could write one give them enough time they could write when there's no miracle and they know there's no miracle do you know how embarrassing that is when you read the new testament and jesus is going everywhere what did jesus do all the time what what are the new testament gospels just full of miracles over and over again it said everybody would come out of neighboring villages and towns and he would heal them all them all over and over dramatic miracles and they have none Look at God's divine stamp of approval upon the Bible. Now you say, but how do we know those miracles really happened? If those miracles didn't happen, the New Testament would have been brushed away as a novel and would not have lasted because there is no value in the New Testament unless it's true about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It doesn't help build nations and it doesn't help build wealth. It just helps build martyrs' tombs. Listen, The only way is, those miracles did occur so that the people in the early days would lay down their lives for this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and they did most willingly because there were miracles that established his authority and the authority of the apostles that followed him. I love comparing the miracle-performing power of the prophets of our Lord Jesus Christ with the prophets and the apostles of the Mormon Church, with the prophets and apostles of Islam or any other religion. I don't care if you can show me a faith healer that can heal once in a while. I'll show you a devil that can heal once in a while. Right. You show me someone that can heal every time, incredible healing acts, or miraculous signs and wonders, and I'll show you a man sent by God. And that's right. the difference. It always works. Remember, who was the first faith healer in the Bible? Moses, Moses was the faith, first faith healer. Who's the first man that took up serpents in the Bible? Moses. Moses. Why did God give Moses the ability to heal and the ability to take up servants? Because Moses said, when I go back and I say that you've sent me, they won't believe me. It's it's Exodus chapter 4. It's a wonderful little exchange. Mm -hmm. Lord, it's a great message, but they're not going to believe me. He said, stick your hand in your coat. Remember? He pulls it out and it's all leprous. He's the first healer of leprosy. He puts it back in. It comes out whole again. He's the first faith healer. And then, that wasn't enough, so the Lord said, throw your rod down. He threw his rod down and it became a serpent. He took up a serpent, and it became a rod again in his hand. There was the Lord blessing him with signs and wonders so that he could go into Egypt, meet with three million, estimated, two, 2 to three million Israelites, and say, God has sent me to lead you out of this land. Isn't that a blessing? Amen. And for 40 years he was able to do that. He could take that rod and smite a rock, and the water would come out. He could take that rod and lift it over the Red Sea and the waters would part and they'd walk through on dry ground. And then there's that prophecy in Micah chapter 7 and verse 15 that says, For the same number of years that Moses had mighty signs and wonders, so mighty signs and wonders are coming again in the days of Jesus of Nazareth. That's right. And my brethren, That's right. Jesus said, Not all of you will be living when the Son of Man comes in glory and his destruction on the city of Jerusalem. But for those 40 years until the destruction of Jerusalem mighty signs and wonders confirmed the word of God just like it confirmed the Old Testament. Amen. Satan duplicated a couple of those miracles when Moses got down into Egypt, didn't he? Yep. Pharaoh's magicians, mm-hmm. but they soon reached a point where they called the miracle uh, finger the of finger of God. And I, hope, I hope you like that little expression. I, I want to tell you now about my, my final proof that the Bible was written by God. And that is because of its person. the person that the Bible tells us about from beginning to end do you remember this morning what's the first reference to the person that's to come what chapter Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 speaking to the serpent the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head what a prophecy how about the last chapter of the Bible what are some of the last words of the Bible in the red writing or just nearby the red writing where it says even so come quickly who? Lord Jesus that's what the book's about Look at John chapter 5 and verse 39. It's a verse that we quote often, but I want you to see it. John 5:39. What a difference it makes when we look into holy books and look at the character and the lives and the identity of the men that they're presenting. This book is about the man, Christ Jesus. "Born of a virgin, compare that. Mighty signs and wonders. Compare that. Prophesied his time in the grave? Compare that. Rose from the dead? Compare that. Appeared to above 500 eyewitnesses at once and ate and drank in front of them and let them touch him? Compare that. Sat down on the right hand of God and broke the nations into pieces just like he prophesied? Compare that. This book is about our Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end all of it is dealings with a nation surrounding him and the prophesied descent, all the way from Adam to the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is no other man man, like Christ Jesus presented in any book. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39 as he addressed his own nation. He said, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You're putting all your confidence in the scriptures that you have as Jews, but if you'd read those scriptures and search them, you'd find out that they're all witnessing about me. I want to see Jesus Christ everywhere I look in the Old and the New Testament. I don't want to spiritualize where spiritualizing would be foolish, but I want to see Jesus Christ lifted up from every place that I possibly can where he wants us to see him. Because he said, search the scriptures, they testify of me. Right. Isn't it wonderful that when you sign your checks, you sign them 2001 for this current year? 2001 means 2001 Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. If you're discussing history or writing about history and it's before 2001 years ago, then you write B.C. for before Christ. A.D. for a Latin term, Anno Domini. In the year of our Lord. Prior to Jesus Christ, the world was dark with ignorant superstition and worship of idols and other natural objects. But after Jesus Christ, depending upon the prevalency of how much Jesus Christ was preached in a nation, that nation was full of light and progress and morality where the message of Jesus Christ went. Prior to him, it was the gates of hell. And Jesus told his apostles, do you remember? Matthew chapter 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. He sent those men out with power, and like we saw this morning, the apostle Paul had hardly gotten started when he was met by Elemas, the sorcerer, who tried to restrict the word of God from the deputy of that island. But the Lord overcame Elamas, didn't he? And the gospel was preached, and the gospel brought light And light brought advancement. And light brought morality and righteousness and conversion as men turned from idols to serve the living God. And where Christianity has gone, polytheism has fallen by the way. Idolatry has fallen by the way because light comes with the message of the man Christ Jesus. He said that he was the life and the light of this world. And where he has been preached, there has been life and there has been light And what a difference it's made. The more prevalent the knowledge of Jesus Christ in a nation, the greater that nation where Jesus Christ is preached from the word of God. I don't mean where Bibles are kissed like this. I mean where it's preached and Jesus Christ is taught and he is lifted up, the man Christ Jesus. The person of the Bible becomes a proof when we recognize his unique identity as God in the flesh. If Jesus is God in the flesh as the Bible says he is, and all the miracles were done by men who said that he was and witnessed that he was, then God must have written the Bible because it's the only book that tells us about the man Christ Jesus. It's the proof by the identity of the person in the Bible. There's no question about the existence of Jesus Christ. Do you know that the idea that Jesus didn't exist, now you can get that today if you go read certain books that Jesus didn't exist, no one ever thought of it before 250 years ago. Right. No one ever thought about it. That came out of Germany. Germany's the darkest nation in Europe. They are dark because they gave up on God a long time ago. Their seminaries are the, are the seedbed for higher and lower criticism against the word of God. Their theologians have blasphemed more against God than any other nation. Their philosophers have blasphemed against God more than any other nation. And if you go back and look at where statements came from that there was never a Jesus... Higher criticism means you criticize even the fact that there's a God or that there's a Jesus Christ that ever lived. Lower criticism is getting into the Word of God and and criticizing every book, whether it's truly Scripture or this man truly wrote it or whether this chapter truly belongs in it. And most of that came out of Germany. But it doesn't matter where it came from. Well, the point I want to make is the short time that there has been in this world the idea... The lie that jesus never existed no one ever questioned it before then right. and they aren't sincerely questioning it they've given themselves so much to the devil that they criticize higher criticism everything god is dead came out of their philosophy it's so you can you can read jewish scholars jewish scholars know that there was a jesus right. they just don't want to admit who he was they know there was a jesus There isn't a question about the historical Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to believe that. And there are things that have been written by historians that had no love for Jesus Christ in the first two centuries A.D. that I hope will bless your heart. Did you know that there's a man named Cornelius Tacitus who wrote the Annals? The Annals are a history of Rome. And he wrote them around 115 A.D., He's one of the most renowned historians of the, Roman, the ancient Roman Empire. And he wrote in about 115 A.D. He was not a Christian. He was a pagan lover of Rome. And he wrote when he was explaining some of Nero's activities and hatred against the group called Christians. In explaining Nero's hatred for them, he just wrote, and I'm not going to read you a long paragraph to bore you. I want to read you these words. He wrote, Christus, Latin, Christ, Christus, from whom the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pur- procurators Pontius Pilate now i get show you know when i read things like that when you're pouring when you're pouring through a pagan historian who's writing about nero and he says that jesus christ suffered the extreme penalty that means he died he died during the reign of a caesar named tiberius And he died under the hands of a procurator named Pontius Pilate. There was a Jesus Christ of Nazareth, my friends, my brethren, my brothers and sisters. And everyone knows that there is. And don't you ever listen to anything that says Jesus Christ did not exist. Jesus Christ did exist. He's changed this world and he's going to change this world a whole lot more. He's going to burn it up and give us a new heaven and a new earth. The whole world, the whole world, creation, humanity, the angels, all things are moving forward to the culmination of his drama when this man, a man, my brethren, a man who is also God, but the man Christ Jesus has been exalted far above all principalities and powers in this universe, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that that man Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he raised up historians... Pagan historians that would make a reference to him and that would be kept and they would be revered by pagans that he did truly exist. I want to read to you a few sections of Josephus. Now Josephus was his name was Joseph. He was a Jew, but he was renamed by the Romans because they loved him. Flavius Josephus. Flavius? Josephus? Those aren't Hebrew names. That's a Roman name. He was the court historian for Vespasian Caesar. Now, let me read to you, and I don't do this very often, but I want to do it now, and I hope you like it. Let me, first of all, tell you about John the Baptist. Was there ever a John the Baptist, or is that just a Bible myth? I hope everyone in here already knows. Do you know why I'm telling you this? Not to convert you or to convince you, but to excite your faith, right. to excite your faith, to know that there's such a reasonable basis for it. Flavius Josephus. Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God. Don't worry about the war. And that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him who was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God and so to come to baptism. For that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away... Listen to this. This, You're not going to believe it. This is is Flavius Josephus, a Christ-hating Jew in the employment of Rome, writing a history of the antiquities of the Jews for the benefit of the Caesars to understand those rebellious people. For that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, to God... And to John, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins, but for the purification of the body, supposing still the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now you may not have followed that exactly, but what Flavius Josephus is trying to explain is that the baptism of John the Baptist was not in order to wash away sins, but an emblematic washing of the body for righteousness that had been secured beforehand. Right, amen. Amen. Now, when do pagan, <laughs> antichrist <laughs> historians write like that? I get so excited I could shout, scream, dance, and rip my jacket off. Like I did last Sunday. Amen. That, we don't need this because the Bible tells us all this. But to read it excites my faith to know that antichristian historians wrote it that clearly. Right. Wrote it that clearly. That was John the Baptist. You want to hear what he says about another man? Now listen, there have been every effort made to find out that this was inserted by Christians because it's too good to be true. David Taylor and a few others of you have read the description of the destruction of Jerusalem and it sounds so much like what Jesus said, you almost think that that was inserted by a Christian also. But listen to this paragraph. I believe that Joseph Flavius Josephus was raised up by the power of God to be an anti-Christian historian for the verification of what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD for the confirmation of the faith of all men since that time I do believe that he prophesied that Vespasian was going to be moved from general to emperor and because of that prophecy of Vespasian's life his life was spared and he was exalted to historian now there was about this time Jesus a wise man now there was about this time Jesus a wise man if it be lawful to call him a man For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was known as the Christ. And when Pilate condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct at this day. (laughs) It's just... We already know that. But to read it from someone who has no love of Christ, that there was a man, and this is what was reported about him, and Josephus was having a hard time. Please understand, every Jew that ever read the Old Testament knew it at all knew that the 70 weeks had expired. Do Do you know that? There was that powerful prophecy of the 490 years from Cyrus decreeing that Jerusalem would be rebuilt that ended with the Messiah. And the only Messiah that, occurred, that appeared during that time, other than the false Christs that were a dime a dozen and amounted to nothing, was Jesus the Christ. Do you know what dilemma that caused for a Jew? But anyway, listen, to that was a wonderful paragraph. Let me, then, let me read you another one. He's talking now about a high priest named Ananias. Was the river of Jesus of Nazareth. He's talking about a high priest, Ananias, who after Festus was, redi- was dead... Remember in your Bible, Festus was toward the end of the book of Acts? <coughs> that this man, when he was, when Elbinus, who was another high priest, left the city of Jerusalem, Ananias, called the Sanhedrin of Judges together. The reason it's mentioned is because it was a violation of Jewish law to do things like this and execute men without the approval of the Roman government. El- Ananias so assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, Who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. And I could go on and read the paragraph, but the rest of it's just how that was a violation of Jewish law. The point of the paragraph that's valuable for us is there is Flavius Josephus acknowledging that there was a man named James who was the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Yes, there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was called Christ, and he had a brother named James, and that man lost his life. Justin Martyr, in 150 A.D., referring to a book that is now not in existence, but it's referred to in other places called the Acts of Pontius Pilate. Do you think a Roman procurator like Pontius Pilate would want to write a few things of what he did while he was the governor of Judea? It's no longer extant. All we know about it is what men have written about it. We don't have the book. But this Justin Martyr wrote, the Acts of Pontius Pilate, it was sent from Pilate to Tiberius Caesar. The expression, they pierced my hands and my feet, was used in reference to the nails of the cross, which were fixed in his hands and feet. And after he was crucified, they cast lots upon his vesture, and they that crucified him parted it among them. And that these things did happen, you can ascertain in the Acts of Pontius Pilate. Later, Justin lists several healing miracles and asserts, and that he did these things, you can learn from the Acts of Pontius Pilate. How about the Babylonian Talmud? Does that sound about as anti-Christian as you can get with a short name? The Babylonian Talmud of the Jews. In Sanhedrin section 43a, it reads, We have been taught, on Passover Eve, they hanged Yeshua. Yeshua. The the Babylonian Talmud of the Jews, written in the first two centuries A.D., says this. It has been taught to us. It is our teaching. It is our teaching. On Passover Eve, they hanged Yeshua because he has practiced magic and led Israel astray. Now, when you read those words, what do you think? When I read those words, I get shouting excited. Because magic to them was miracles that they couldn't explain because he wasn't part of their Sanhedrin we hanged Yeshua. You say, well, it says hanged. It doesn't say crucified. Doesn't it say in Galatians that whosoever is hanged on a tree is under the curse? And he's called Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name of our Savior before it's translated into Greek and becomes Jesus when it comes into English. On Passover Eve, was that when he was crucified? The character and the person and the teachings of our Savior are so superior to any other holy man or religious founder, Jesus and Muhammad are so different. Muhammad invented Islam himself. Jesus didn't. Jesus simply taught the truth of God and had other men teaching it, like John the Baptist, who even came before him. Muhammad directed a lot of attention toward himself. Jesus directed a lot of attention toward God, and Jesus was God, which makes a great difference. Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. Muhammad's only honor was in his own country. i got to think about that one for a while. Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. A prophet's always going to get honor somewhere else. Jesus didn't get honor in his own country. They crucified him. Muhammad only got honor in his own country. They They made him their civil leader. Muhammad lived a natural life with less moral restraint than most. Jesus lived a moral life of restraint unlike any other man. And he had many women that followed him. And on and on we could go. He lived a great life of spiritual holiness, our Savior did, proving himself to be the Son of God, to be the person of the Word of God unlike any other person that this world has ever seen, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha himself, the enlightened one. Here's the enlightened one. Here's what he had to say. Here's his words of wisdom. i got to share this with you just so that you can compare them to things that Jesus taught in the Bible. Here's one of his more enlightened sayings. I look upon the judgments of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of belief as traces left by the four seasons. That's what you get for reading Buddhist books. Confusion. Jesus Christ, you want to go read some sentences by Jesus Christ? Yes. He just reads them direct, direct, powerful, concise statements of fact that we can all understand. You know, Eric's right now taking some courses in order to get his degree where he's re- having to read stuff like that. And he has seen some of it. But you've got to read it to believe it. Jesus did not teach like that at all. Jesus taught so plainly, and he was absolutely exclusive. Jesus Christ said... No man cometh unto the Father but by me. His apostles taught the message, There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, than the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If the Bible is true at all, there is no allowance made for any other religion, any other holy man, any other prophet, because Jesus Christ is the only way, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. Jesus Christ is absolutely exclusive in his religion. His character and his teachings are so superior to any holy man. It separates the Bible from all other holy books. Brethren, once this series has been preached, and now it's been preached, we take this Bible and we are going to open it again, like we've opened it before. And what it says to us, we are going to believe that it's the Word of God to our souls and how we ought to live. When it addresses how we ought to train our children, this is God's direction for our lives. It's not just the writings of good men with good ideas. It's the words of God on how we should train our children. If it addresses marriage, it's the words of God about how our marriages should be. And on and on we can go. The reason for looking at the word of God is to believe it. And so that when you're watching the television or reading the newspaper and you see anything coming out of Washington that says the Koran is just another good holy book like the Bible, you will know better. There is no comparison between the two. And that you will know that the Bible was written by God, and the man Christ Jesus is the only one that we should look to. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king, our Lord, our Savior, our door. He is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. He is the Word of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He's coming to destroy this world and to get himself glory over all his enemies and be exalted in front of the entire universe as the beloved Son of God. And we are going to be in his army with him and singing his praises and following behind his white horse in robes of righteousness that he has secured by his glorious death when Yeshua was hanged on the eve of Passover. Yes, they hanged our Yeshua, but he came back in 40 years after that and destroyed their city of Jerusalem, leveled their temple, and killed one million of them in inside the city walls of Jerusalem because they had crucified the Lord of Glory. Amen. Right. That's our Savior, and the book, the Bible, all eleven hundred and eighty-nine chapters and thirty-one thousand one hundred and sixty-five verses are about Yeshua, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord, brethren. If the Bible was written by God, then we should be able now to turn within its pages. And everything that it says about itself, we believe. It's dogmatic, absolute statements of its own integrity and of how we ought to study it and how it ought to be preached. We believe it because it's the Word of God. Amen. We are going to live our lives by the faith in the, in the premise that the Bible, the King James Bible, is the Word of God. And our religion will be based on everything that Bible teaches. Right. That is our religion. That is our faith. Bible Christianity. And I hope you rejoice in it. And the message of that faith is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is a glorious Savior. And brethren, he owns us as his brethren and and his children. And he's redeemed us to God with the sacrifice of himself. And he's going to present us to his Father holy and blameless without spot or blemish any one of these days. Any one of these days. If the Bible's been written by God and it's about our Savior Jesus Christ, then we should want to do everything that it says. We should want to read its precious words, memorize its precious, precious verses, and live them every day. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, with that, we, I just want to show you those verses there. We're going to sing them and we're done. Psalm 19, I, we could go to Psalm 119. Remember, I know I've said it many times. Two chapters in the book of Psalms that are about the Bible. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. I repeat myself because you have children sitting in your rows, and I want them to hear these things and remember them. There's two chapters in the Bible. There's two chapters in the book of Psalms that are written about the Bible. It's chapters 19 and 119 of Psalms. I I came up with 22 evidences for the Word of God. When I look into Psalm 19, I believe that David saw them all, and he saw them all in verses 7 through 9 when he said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. You know, pick whichever one of the proofs that I've given you and they're, they're going to fit into one of these six statements about the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Our right, rejoicing the heart. Yes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's enlightenment. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Right. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous, together everything i've taught you can be summed up in those three verses everything i've said is summed up in those three verses in psalm 19 which we're going to sing in just a moment but let me show you verses 10 and 11 10 is our memory verse for this week that the words of god are more to be desired than gold yea than much fine gold and i hope that is the desire of your heart to cherish these words and to value them more valuable than gold and sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb it should be the delight of your heart as wow. psalm 119 describes to open these pages and read words from the living god to us not the words of men but as it is in truth the word of god first thessalonians 2 13 for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of god spake as they were moved by the holy ghost amen second peter 1 21 look at verse 11 moreover by them is thy servant warned brethren if we'll take heed to this bible it will warn us of trouble that will come in our lives if we do not obey moreover by these words these statutes these commandments this fear these judgments the law the testimony if we'll take heed to them we will be warned and in keeping of them there is great reward Amen. there is great reward in keeping the statutes and the law of god in your marriage in your employment in your life, your thoughts, your words. Your entire life is all wrapped up in this Bible. Remember, the Bible's complete. One of its evidences is how thorough it is in dealing with every aspect of our lives. And if we obey it, there is great reward. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. On this subject, may you love the word of God. We are Bible Christians because our Christianity is based on what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and no other source. And may Jesus Christ be praised by all that's been said In this series, may we live for Him. Brother Eric, come and lead us in singing Psalm 19.